Welcome to season two of People Are the Answer. This is our 11th overall episode. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact. Today's episode features my friend, Dr. Marion McNabb, CEO of 510 Innovations, a human and data sciences think tank serving the healthcare, cannabis, and ethnogenic plant medicine industries with research, data use, analytics, and publication services. She also co-founded the Massachusetts Cannabis Center of Excellence, a nonprofit that conducts citizen science-focused population studies and programs. Dr. McNabb is also the retail appointee to the Massachusetts Cannabis Advisory Board, and she's the principal investigator of six cannabis research studies. Dr. McNabb also has over 15 years of global public health experience working in the areas of digital health, HIV AIDS, maternal and child health, and family planning, working primarily in Africa and Haiti. Marion and I had a great discussion about her public health work, cannabis initiatives, and life. Here is Dr. Marion McNabb on People Are the Answer. Marion, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It'd be great if you could just start off by you know, telling us who you are, you know, where you're based, and what your current role is. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Dr. Marion McNabb, and I'm based out of East Boston, and um, I'm the president of the Cannabis Center of Excellence, uh, which is a 501c3 nonprofit based out of Massachusetts that uh, works on cannabis research, education, and social justice. Um, and I'm also the um, CEO of a new company called 510 Innovations. Awesome. Well, we can dig in a little further into each of those as we continue here. But in general, you know, what would you say motivates you? Interesting. Um, you know, I'm really motivated. Um, I'd say by a passion for helping and a passion for innovation. Um, uh, probably first and foremost, um, you know, my whole career has really centered around trying to address some major public health problems or health problems um, that our world has faced. And so I've, I've always been, um, you know, sort of motivated to um, drive change, um, to make an impact and um, to be successful. Um, both financially and in a career uh, perspective while I do that, but um, a good part of, of wanting to give back. Awesome. Um, and you tell us uh, where you grew up and just kind of what it was like for you growing up. Yeah, awesome. So I um, grew up actually in a number of different places. So I was born in Oklahoma and uh, lived there till I was about uh, 12 and then moved to um, New Orleans, stayed there for a couple of years um, and um, then spent my high school years in Atlanta. And um, once I graduated, uh, you know, it was interesting being in the South, you know, so I, I grew up, uh, it's very, I now live in Massachusetts, it's a very different place. Um, but, you know, it was interesting. I always, um, when I was growing up, I always had a love of science and medicine, and I actually always wanted to be a, a clinical doctor. And um, when I was in high school, uh, because I was in Atlanta, I was um, surrounded by the Centers for Disease Control, and my, my father actually worked for the Centers for Disease Control. So I was exposed to 
you know, public health programming at a very young age. Um, and when they asked me in high school, you know, what, what would you like to do for your career? We had to do a little like two week, um, you know, kind of like, uh, I guess not an internship, but go visit somewhere that you might want to be in your future. And I went to a biosafety lab level four <laughs> at CDC. So I toured where all the infectious, infectious diseases were and how they studied them and all that kind of good stuff. Um, this is back way back around Ebola. So, so my my interest in, in the work that I do now is has definitely been a long time since I was a child. And um, yeah, it was, it's been a um, an interesting ride since then. It's cool to hear that you were inspired so early, and then to was that experience that you had in high school kind of pivotal for you and where you went after that? Oh, absolutely, um, absolutely. I was. At that time, you know, um, the HIV epidemic was emerging um, and it was uh, emerging as a real serious, um, you know, threat. And um, I, you know, I had started, it makes sense, you know, I had started so, so long ago thinking about it. Um, and what it did was, um, you know, propelled me right after high school. I, I went to college, but I only went to my first year of college. And then I decided to step back from college, actually, and go do global health work and see if, you know, take some trips and see if um, I, you know, uh, should work in that area. And I ended up going to Zimbabwe and working on the HIV AIDS epidemic. And that really, really um, set the course of how I did my education and all of my career moving forward. Um, it was a very powerful trip for me that I took uh, to Zimbabwe for about three months. Um, and then, yeah, from, from then on, I had a career of about 15 years working um, to address the HIV epidemic before I started cannabis. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, I think anyone that can dedicate themselves to public health is amazing. And to do so in a place like Africa and country like Zimbabwe, um, I'm sure that was transformative for you. Yeah, it really was. Um, when I was there, I so you know, I... I was there for three months, at the, um, so it must have been definitely not even 21. Um, and um, I was at an orphanage and I was teaching and taking care of kids there. And one of the most striking um, moments of those three months was uh, when the, the uh, nurses and everybody at that home told me, there are some kids that are at this health facility or at this orphanage that have HIV and there's some that don't. And these kids don't know if they have HIV or not. And I was like, okay, why don't they know? Um, because in Zimbabwe, we don't have access to the HIV test. Um, so we clinically can presume that these kids have HIV, but we're not actually you know, able to verify it. And so we just want you to know as a volunteer, when you're bathing them or when you're taking care of them, you know, um, just be aware uh, to take care of yourself and to understand. And, and this was a super powerful moment in my life. Um, like a child couldn't, couldn't know because they didn't have a test. And um, right towards the end of my um, time at that orphanage, um, there were two, two children that I was, had come very close to. Um, their names were Definite and Doubt. And Definite uh, did not have HIV and Doubt did. And the way that this woman, the mother of these children named their children, I think, you know, 
when they were born, maybe she thought one was definitely going to live and, and one she doubt would mm-hmm. um, survive. And actually, at the end of my three months, those two twin brothers, they were twin brothers, doubt died and doubt did, in fact, have HIV when definite did not. And that just perplexed me. Why can two children, you know, come from the same mother, one have HIV, one not, um, you know, it just it threw me into, I'm going to study this. Uh, so I left there and, um, you know, went back to school and, and then moved to St. Louis University um, and started my um, sort of career there. It ended up, or my, my uh, beginning of my undergraduate degree. I started as wanting to go into medicine um, and become, you know, sort of on the clinical side. And then I ended up at the end uh, with an African and African-American studies degree. <laughs> and that's a whole other story in itself, um, but it was very, very helpful and, and kind of, um, you know, then continued my, that was the first part of my three series of educational programming. Right. Yeah. Sounds like absolutely incredible experience and, I mean, the lives that you touched and the things that you must have seen on those trips uh, had to be incredible. And so, you know, you mentioned from there going back to school and that wasn't your last stop in Africa, though. No, certainly wasn't. So I, I went back to St. Louis University. I got my, my bachelor's degree in African and African-American studies. Um, really, I, I wanted to understand why the continent and why, uh, why Africa was the way that it was. Like, I wanted to understand the history. Why was it so poor? Why was there all this racial injustice? Um, and I wanted to understand that so that I could help to des- design solutions. Cause I think it's really important to understand our history to, to know, to make change. So after I finished um, my bachelor's degree, I decided, okay, now I've studied Africa and I'm going to go back. And um, I, had a couple of choices. I um, was looking at either going back to Zimbabwe, um, I was looking at going to Ghana, and I was also looking at going to Ethiopia. And I also interestingly had a love of reggae and uh, Rastafarianism at the time too, and there's a lot of really interesting history around there. And so those are some of the reasons why I had those three countries in my mind at that time. And um, there was my, my father, as I mentioned, worked in uh, public health. So um, he had a colleague in Ethiopia who was working for the Centers for Disease Control. So after I graduated, I um, you know, took a leap of faith. I bought a ticket and I went over there and I was able to stay um, with my father's colleague. Um, and that ended up um, in volunteering for a few months and then ended up in me actually securing um, a job uh, at Chipaigo, which is an affiliate of Johns Hopkins University. And um, it, I was, it was at that time, um, the US government was starting and other governments around the world were starting to provide financial resources to address the HIV epidemic. And so um, I uh, was employed by uh, Japaigo and Johns Hopkins to kind of help them set up um, a program um, in Ethiopia. And so that launched into a eight year long uh, career living and working there. Um, wow. Yeah, and you know, it was two stints. I worked four years, and then I moved to to Baltimore for a year, and then I moved back. Um, but it was a really incredibly powerful experience to watch a country go from you know really like being onslaughted with a new disease and burden, which was HIV, 
And um, really, to how do you train healthcare workers? How do you get testing out there? How do you um, get treatment out there? And it was watching a country learn to adapt to this over eight years. It was fascinating, fascinating. By the time I left, you know, HIV treatment was operational and, you know, all hospitals of the country and people were trained. So to just watch that from like, you know, sort of ground zero where people were dying to right. now we had treatment and what, what all those interventions uh, went into that was extraordinarily valuable. Amazing work that you were doing. And what specifically was your role um, for a lot of those eight years? Yeah, so I um, actually got my master's in public health online while I was living there. And my role was, um, it started out as basically the number two of the country director. Um, I was like the executive uh, program manager and assistant. And as I got my master's degree, um, then I was promoted, promoted. Um, and at the end of my time, I was um, the program manager for a um, for J. Johns Hopkins University. Um, so different than the Japaiga one that I had started on. Um, but I was a program manager for a Hopkins program um, that oversaw $12 million a year budget and worked with over 125 hospitals um, around the country. And so my job was um, to organize trainings, um, you know, make things happen, so to speak. So we would always, you know, apply for grants and I, would, I was a grant writer, I was a budgeter, I was an activity planner, I helped hire people, I helped run trainings. Um, you know, it was extraordinarily valuable. I think at one point I was running like, you know, online or sequential trainings for infection prevention in five different places at the same time. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was pretty wild. Um, that will certainly yeah. help somebody, you know, wearing all those hats helps you both in the nonprofit world as well as, you know, in the startup world uh, where you're often wearing a lot of hats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's really important, I think, that one of the good skills that I learned there was, was around, you know, um, budgeting and management and, you know, how do you set up these systems and working with academic institutions. And so, you know, I, I've definitely been working with the academic sector for a really long time. So it's a, a great experience to understand that, you know, how do you engage in, in academics versus, which is a whole different um, industry, so to speak, you know, than a business industry. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so, you know, you spent your time in Ethiopia working uh, on reproductive health, it sounds like, and um, you know, I also saw some mentions of digital health and UNICEF in your resume. Um, could you tell me about what you did uh, in those realms? Yeah, so when I lived in Ethiopia, I was really interested in how do we utilize, because in, in resource-poor settings, um, how do you maximize um, the dollars that you have to be able to work with for the most impact? And so I started to look at trying to understand data, data trends in the work that we were doing and trying to um, really think about how do you um, maximize the use of digital technologies that were emerging. So um, when I was in Ethiopia, one of the um, companies I, I worked for in the middle of those things was called Therasim. It was an electronic um, learning management system that we implemented to train doctors about HIV and tuberculosis. So I was doing e-learning uh, two decades ago. Wow. And as I, yeah, in Ethiopia, without even like broadband internet access, there wasn't cell phone access to data at that point. I had a BlackBerry. It worked in America, but there was no data access in Ethiopia. You could make a phone call, 
Um, but I was really trying to look at things that were happening um, in other places and really try and offer really great new advanced opportunities for colleagues in Ethiopia. So um, that really kind of, that work when I started that, um, you know, really took off when I moved to Boston. Um, so when I left Ethiopia, I left Ethiopia to uh, pursue a doctoral degree at Boston University. And so in 2010, I landed in um, Boston to start my doctoral program and got a job also uh, with Pathfinder International. And so I continued on my global health work, but uh, from the state side. And Pathfinder International is based out of Watertown and they work on sexual reproductive health and rights programming around the world as well. And they hired me, I got, I got the job there as a specific role. The, the organization was interested in expanding in digital health. So they wanted to learn about how do we use, how do they use text messaging or how do, how do we do online surveys or how, how do we implement technology into development programs and how do you do that effectively? And, and the organization wanted to do it to build up a new core area of its work. So um, I ended up getting the job and they gave me a $250,000 budget and said, okay, um, here's a budget. We have a demonstration project that we'd like to start um, in these two years. And here's a two year budget. And we'd like you to grow this budget and grow our programming um, with this pilot money. It's a great, that's a great idea. Um, so the project was um, to uh, implement a maternal and child health mobile application in Nigeria and to see if this mobile health application would improve the clinical outcomes of pregnant women and their babies. And the mobile application was to be used by healthcare workers. And the reason why it was important at the time is, you know, healthcare workers in, those, in that time in these settings often uh, had paper ledgers and there's not electronic medical records and it's, it's difficult to, um, really drill, drill down into that data and make sure that you're making the right clinical decisions and um, you're collecting that information. So we implemented this app. It worked. Um, it was really, you know, great. Uh, worked at the colleague that I worked with now is now an international expert in this, um, which is really exciting. Uh, so we, we kind of all started together and, and he's one of the global leaders now. Um, and, and as, as um, that one project with uh, Nigeria was implemented, I was able to expand Pathfinder's programming in digital health um, to over $3.5 million and um, almost 12 projects in seven countries. So um, I, you know, they found that to be extraordinarily successful. Um, and so did I, I thought, you know, at that time, digital health was really an emerging area and uh, in global health. So, um, and it still is, honestly, you know, there's still so much work to do when it comes to maximizing data and, and just the digital side of healthcare. You know, I think we are starting to get to the point where we are collecting more and more data. And then there's certain people and companies out there that are trying to figure out how do we put all this together to actually create useful uh, knowledge from this. Yeah, yeah. And I think the United States has a lot to learn, to be honest. I mean, what happened? Because in the health boom where we are and, and in our healthcare system, 
all of our electronic medical records are very fragmented and you don't have a lot of data sharing. I mean, I can show up to the doctor, um, you know, my primary care doc and my cardiologist won't be able to see the same health record. And that's a problem And uh, for our healthcare system. So I do think we still have so much more room to learn and, and um, you know, be able to work on interoperability and data layers that really allow us to use uh, information um, more effectively and better to have precision healthcare. Um, so what happened was I um, was working on that project um, with Pathfinder, and then um, you know I, I was just uh, was bopping around the world. All right, I was saying I had you know 13 projects in seven countries. I was you know 60% of my life was on a plane i didn't necessarily know what day it was or what time zone i was in i was effectively doing projects but i was on calls with america at night and you know india in the morning and yeah you know. so um at that around that time it was all very successful is actually when uh it became legal for cannabis in massachusetts and i thought well wow this is this is quite interesting um and um you know, uh, really wanted to started to think about about transitioning my career. Um, but my last project, um, you know, in in global digital health before I did launch into the cannabis industry was working for UNICEF and it was a really great honor. Um, UNICEF, um, the, all the UN organizations, World Health Organization, all these other groups uh, really worked to create those standards and, um, you know, approaches for um, development and, and guiding things forward. So um, USAID and WHO had come up with their own frameworks and tools and UNICEF was quite interested in understanding how they could apply digital technologies in their uh, next 20-year uh, strategy. And so I um, uh, bid on a contract and was accepted and I helped facilitate a process for UNICEF in New York and all of the UNICEF countries around the world to develop um, what is now the digital uh, approach uh, to health at UNICEF. So it's something I'm very proud of. It was, it was not an easy contract uh, to accomplish when you're trying to gain consensus with countries all around the world that have different priorities and in a UN system, but was able not to, to do mention, it. Not to mention the various cultures you're dealing with. I mean, negotiating in general is difficult, but with all of these different cultures, with all these different goals, you should be very proud because it's quite the accomplishment to be able to to get those uh, to come together. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And especially when in, in, a, in an organization, in a hierarchy like UNICEF, when we were looking at, okay, strategic regions, and we're talking about technology advancements. Now, technology advancements are all different in all these different regions. So if you look at the Asian region, you know, and the, and, or if you look at the African, or if you look at the uh, European, you know, they all have their own priorities or their own level of advancement in technology and adopting of these solutions. So, yeah, it was quite interesting um, to work with them. And, and how I approached it was, I don't have the answers. I, I want to create a framework where you all, you all know, you know, you're the expertise. So let's create a framework in a way to highlight um, what you think is the priority. And so we went through a number of interviews and a number of stakeholder meetings where we had representatives from each of the regions comment and contribute. So it was more around the process of, of designing and engaging that, <clears throat> that I brought to the table and tried to highlight their, their expertise, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah. I didn't go in and say, hey, UNICEF, you need to implement blah, blah, blah technologies. I was technology agnostic. I was just 
as a, as a way to facilitate the communication and get, get the job done. So, yeah, yeah. that's such, such an important role and one that I think your pardon is going to continue to reverberate probably throughout history. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's such important work and um, as is what you're doing now in, in the cannabis industry, I'm curious, you know, how did you go from UNICEF and the other areas that you were in and transition into cannabis? Yeah, so um, so I was living in Massachusetts. It became legal um, for adult use. And it was in the middle of my UNICEF consultancy, actually. Um, and um, I, I met a friend, Brady McCaffrey, and um, you know he was interested in, in looking into the cannabis industry too, and kind of um, now that it was legal. And so um, we decided to form a company together and uh, we started Cannabis Community Care and Research Network. And that year, you all hosted the competition um at boston university and so as an alum i was very excited to see that bu and greenland partners was hosting an ancillary cannabis startup competition um i was like great i'm an ancillary business this is an idea and what i wanted to do was to think about you know the the areas that, i mean obviously i'm a public health and i'm, and I'm a researcher um, but also very staunch social justice uh advocate and so uh, we formed together and um, I competed in the competition and won uh, the competition today to um, basically start the Cannabis Center of Excellence, which I now run. So um, it's a very successful competition in my, in my, my eyes. But I, I wanted to, and what we had always started and have been since the last five years advocating around is um, for more access to cannabis research education and social justice um, and because you know cannabis has been federally illegal it's been it's hampered all of the local united states abilities to conduct cannabis research studies and i you know live in massachusetts which has you know well over a hundred institutions of higher education uh it's really a healthcare tourism place i would say um you know really have some of the highest healthcare in the world so why couldn't Massachusetts be a leader in um, cannabis research and education moving forward? So we um, started, we won the competition. And in the first couple of years, as everything was being um, set up here with the Cannabis Advisory Board and the Cannabis Control Commission, um, we submitted and testified oh, countless numbers of times, submitted hundreds and hundreds of pages of academic testimony, which I'm excited some of them are now being revived and used again. Um, and really to call for cannabis research, the cannabis research license that um, exists here, open data uh, that the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission had and does now have open data platform and um, social justice. So we uh, you know, participated in um, you know, sort of the last couple of years of the social justice program. And really, I wanted to, to think about how does some of those uh, global public health data principles and, and principles, how can they be applied here? And I, I still believe that a lot of my experience um, in HIV really is helpful um, in the cannabis industry. You know, we had to deal with stigma. We had to deal with, you know, um, disclosures. And, and so there's just, I, I thought, you know, perhaps maybe I could uh, apply some of those lessons here and I think that was really profound. Honestly, I think, you know, the average citizen that isn't engaged directly with the cannabis industry may not realize, one, how important this research and data is, two, 
how there's such a lack of it, and three, how difficult the federal government makes it to obtain that data and do that research. And really, the, this cannabis plant, we've already seen so many things that it can do, but it needs tremendous amounts of research for us to really tap into all of its potential, for us to understand how it interacts with different body chemistries and so on. And I think, you know, when Mike and I first saw your application, we were really excited to see that there was someone trying to bridge some of this data divide within cannabis that is still so needed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, thank you for the support. I'm so glad that you hosted that competition and believed in the idea. Um, I, you know, there are other countries are leading in, in clinical research and there are, there's, uh, you know, studies that are out there um, documenting a lot of this stuff. And I think where we're at now is trying to understand personalized medicine and human populations in the U.S., you know. So we, we see every day that um, there's, you know, more information coming out. Israel's a huge leader. Canada's a huge leader in this area. You know, obviously they have just different uh, sort of national systems and priorities around funding and, and research around medical cannabis. Um, but it is, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult in the United States um, and still is. You, you um, as a cannabis researcher, um, you know, in an academic institution, you really have a very limited uh, government supply that you can use to study. It's a very onerous process to get the funding to do it. Um, it's like our, and you, as you well know, our colleague, Dr. Sue Sisley, it took her over a decade just to get one study up and running. And that's really just not acceptable, um, primarily because there, cannabis was in our U.S. pharmacopoeia, it was prescribed by doctors, and then, you know, removed off of, um, and put on Schedule One in, in federal illegality, which just, just prevented, removed uh, information about it in our healthcare provider education systems, um, really not a lot of grant funding out there. I, I would say that's been a real struggle. Um, uh, recently, an article, I'd say it was a couple of months ago, came out that really documented where the last 20 to 30 years worth of financial funding for cannabis research has gone to. And it did show that I believe over 90% of that funding was, was intended to show harms. And so when we talk about research, it's important to understand, you know, Who's funding it? What are the objectives of that research? Um, and, you know, um, really bias is a very important aspect of it. We're looking for unbiased research. And like you said, so much, especially of the earlier research that does exist was, you know, you're only going to get this money if you can show that it's, it's doing bad things. Uh -huh. And it was, uh, it's incredibly frustrating to see. And now we're starting to see, you know, things trickle out here and there that are more uh, objective and hopefully that can continue. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, just a really exciting opportunity we have now um, here in Massachusetts and in other states that are really adopting the research license category or providing you know, funding resources towards that. Some states are using tax money um, to uh, provide funding opportunities for researchers to be able to conduct studies. So um, yeah, I think we just, we have um, such, it's just a, a really exciting time. And especially here in the industry in Massachusetts, we're in our fifth year um, and, you know, there's a lot of revenue coming in and, you know, you know, where can we take this to the next level here? Um, yeah. And not only in Massachusetts, but nationwide. So, well, I, you know, I will say, as you've surely heard me say before, um, you were the best winner we possibly could have imagined for that first year. And 
Um, so the listeners are aware, you know, Mike and I help the teams that are in the finals. We don't judge them. The judges picked you guys as the winner and they were right. And you set an example for uh, all the winners that since you, um, you know, we did our fifth annual this year, which was so exciting. And now it's just been amazing to watch over these five years. You've become a true force in the Massachusetts cannabis industry and uh, joined the cannabis advisory board. So um, it's been really incredible to watch. Thanks. Yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Um, yeah, I'm really, really excited about the nomination to the Massachusetts Cannabis Advisory Board. Um, so I was nominated by the treasurer um, and, in October, and I'll serve a two-year term. And what the advisory board does is provide recommendations on certain areas uh, to the commission, to the Cannabis Control Commission here. So my uh, particular area of expertise that I've been assigned for is retail. And so that's quite exciting. Um, and uh, I think it's appropriate. Uh, the last, so I've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, other research studies, but I guess forgot to mention that uh, we did conduct several research studies over the last few years. Um, I actually have run six different cannabis research studies now um, since the start of my work and the work of um, all of the team. And uh, this started about four years ago when uh, a professor at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth uh, reached out and said, you know what, I uh, have tenure, I can't get fired, um, but I also, I really want to work in the cannabis industry, um, but I, I need to have a partner that's an academic partner that would work with me on these things. Um, I said, sure, absolutely. And so we partnered together uh, with UMass Dartmouth and C3RN at the time, and now the Center of Excellence. And we have an agreement with their Institutional Review Board, uh, which is a human subjects ethical review board that we can conduct studies. And we can conduct um, basically epidemiological uh, studies uh, under our existing arrangement that we don't collect any personal identifying information from anybody, so we don't fall under HIPAA. Um, and we um, have successfully run now six studies. Um, the first one, and, and, and this is why we, the first one was understanding um, cannabis consumers and patients in Massachusetts and nationally. Why do people consume cannabis? How much are they consuming? For what types of health conditions or other kinds of associated relief? How much do they spend? How much do they consume? What do they prefer? How do they get their knowledge? Do they talk to their healthcare providers about it? Etc. And um, that started in, in uh, 2018. Um, and we then moved into a veteran study in 2019. And then uh, COVID hit. And I ran a COVID study and how did COVID impact adult use uh, consumers and patients. And <clears throat> so understanding and hearing from people who access cannabis retail outlets has been something I've been doing for six years. Um, and so I think um, the treasurer's office is quite excited to hear that and to come from a nonprofit perspective and a, a researcher perspective, um, you know, and, and kind of trying, trying to drive the, the Commonwealth forward with data and excellence um, was, you know, uh, favorable to rock or with, the, with the treasurer's office. So I'm really excited that I did get the appointment. I've had the first uh, cannabis advisory board meeting attended that and, and excited for the next two years of what's to come. Um, but one of the key points um, that we that I've learned, and, and this is, I guess, the tune that I've been singing um, for quite a while now, but more specifically in the last couple of months, is that from all of these five years of study and data um, and results, 
what I have found is that between 50 and 76% of the people that consume or cannabis for medical or adult use purposes and report in our research studies are doing so to reduce unwanted over-the-counter prescription or opioid use. And um, from a public health perspective, uh, cannabis is a non-lethal substance and um, really has, uh, could be, you know, potentially considered as a good harm reduction approach. Um, and so really just trying to understand and now grapple with this, this data and the things that we've been seeing and kind of really reach back out and to the public health and the health community to, to kind of let them know, hey, this is, you know, kind of what's happening. Um, and so, yeah, I've been spending the last couple of months um, at every one of these expos doing a, a five-year data and review uh, presentation, and I'll do a couple more next week. Um, and I think it's, you know, just a, a really important point for the industry, um, the cannabis industry to know about, but also the healthcare provider and public health communities. As we've seen COVID, um, you know, the devastating impacts of COVID in the last couple of years have actually exacerbated this. And we're seeing now uh, trends in our research studies of people reporting cannabis use more so for anxiety and less so for chronic pain. Now that's a change in data trends that we've seen. So, um, you know, really trying to understand these nuances of how people are consuming this plant for what health conditions and in what, you know, other uh, health interventions has been quite interesting. Yeah, it's really important work um, as we get an understanding of what people use the plant for and, and why. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there, they hear recreational, you know, as you and I call, and a lot of people in the industry call adult use because so many people are using it for other reasons, they're not using it necessarily for recreation, like you said, whether it's sleep, anxiety, you know, hunger, um, or to lessen their opioid consumption. And I think the fact that people feel that it is a good substitute for many over-the-counter uh, prescription medicine, as well as, you know, over-the-counter medicine, as well as prescription medicine, um, I'm sure there's, there's obviously dollars on that side of the fence. And um, I'm sure those keep up some of the hurdles that we have. But uh, despite that, people like you are pushing through and getting some of this research out there. And I think that it's crucial um, for us to move forward. And like you said, it's, it's truly a public health issue. And in my efforts to get medical cannabis legalized in my home state of South Carolina, uh, our original home state and, and um, in other places as well as federally, uh, I've certainly been trying to make it clear and evident that uh, cannabis can really reduce opioid consumption. It's been shown to reduce opioid deaths in places where it's legal. So there's been so much media about the opioid crisis and uh, cannabis truly is a tool. It's not the answer necessarily, but it's a tool that can help lessen the devastation from it. And uh, I think research like yours is really important in helping to make that point. Yeah, thank you. I um, and one of the, uh, I agree, and I think one of the approaches, the interesting approaches that, that uh, we've taken uh, over the last five years and in conducting these studies is um, trying to rapidly get the word out there and utilize um, a lot of the work in educational programs. So 
Um, so not only conducting the studies, but actually then putting that data into practice as quickly as possible. Um, and either that be through community education programs or through policy, like uh, we have a bill in the Massachusetts State House right now based on veterans data, for example. Um, but over the last uh, five years, I've, we, we, I can't even believe it. We organized over 30 uh, high level educational events surrounding these, uh, the data points and the research studies that I talked about. So we had a, a six part event series right after we won the competition with you. And we had a, in 2019, we ran six events with the Veterans Health and Medical Cannabis Study. Um, and um, part of, you know, the way that uh, we have conducted these studies is uh, partnerships with the industry. They provide uh, financial support and um, uh, also, we've uh, helped us get the word out about the studies, and we uh, one of the interventions that we've done is going back to a dispensary and said a medical dispensary um, patients. We'd ask you to fill out a survey. Now you come back and present that data back um, to the patients that filled it out. And wow, I've done a couple of these events, and just incredibly transformative from a public health uh, intervention level. I'll give you an example. Two weeks ago, I was at a pop-up. I'm running a, because of all the results and the things that we've talked about from consumers and patients, actually um, earlier, uh, uh, where are we now? <laughs> I'm like, is it this year, last year, earlier this year? Uh, you know, I said second year in the COVID pandemic. Time is very confusing in a COVID world. It is, okay, thank you for that. Um, but so we launched a healthcare provider knowledge attitude and practices study, because now we understand, okay, we, we really wanna know what do, what our healthcare providers know. So I was at a pop-up event with uh, one of my partners, uh, who's a study uh, partner a couple weeks ago. And it was just a couple, uh, you know, having a little table there. So when patients and customers are walking in and out, they can, um, you know, stop by and, and I talk to them about the, the research. And I've also launched an, an art project as well around cannabis and opioid awareness, um, which I could talk a little more more about. But I had my art there, and um, to your point of adult use, personal use, recreational, this was a, 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 a an adult use facility. But a woman walked up to me, and she goes, she saw my art, and she goes, "Oh my God, are you Dr. Mary McNabb?" And I was like, "Yes." Hi, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> yep, this is the art and this is what I do, Cannabis Center of Excellence. And she was like, I cannot thank you enough. She was like, look, I um, am a school teacher and I have learned from all of your work around the medical cannabis and the, the role and your research and your findings have helped me so much understand my anxiety and my cannabis consumption and how I can deal with this myself. And we're in an adult use facility. She's talking about a medical problem, right? And there's a lot of people that don't wanna get a medical card, but there's a lot of advantages to get a medical card, but some people may be fired and then, you know, there's, a, there's still some issues that we have to deal with. But just the fact that this woman was like, wow, I've in my own personal use been able to, to now change because this work was just like, so striking to me, you know? And then I was like, oh man, can I take a picture with you? And she goes, no, that's the problem. I can't talk about my use because I'll get fired from my job. 
And I was like, right. And she was like, keep doing what you're doing. And I'm like, okay, but this is an important issue, you know? And like, she can't come out of the closet. And there's, so we still have, um, you know, with our healthcare providers, not knowing much about it or not being able to prescribe and recommend. And the story that I just told you, or, you know, the data that we see that patients and consumers are having to navigate these things on their own without having the good guidance of their healthcare providers, and that's a problem. Absolutely, there's there's still such a tremendous amount of work to do to get the cannabis industry where it needs to maximize its public benefit. Um, and like you said, the fact that she can't have these regular conversations with her usual doctor is one aspect that highlights that. And um, there's still so much to do on the the legal side and the criminal justice side, and uh, as we can see here on the healthcare side and but it's people like you that are pushing us in that right direction. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. Trying, it's important work. I think it still needs to be done. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know we've been talking about your awesome research and work in cannabis, um, but for the people out there that aren't too familiar with it, could you just give kind of a brief explanation of what exactly is the Cannabis Center of Excellence? Yes, um, so the Cannabis Center of Excellence is a 501c3 nonprofit and what we are is a virtual resource for academics, uh, policymakers, consumers, patients, and the cannabis industry uh, to drive innovation forward. Um, and what we do is uh, we conduct research studies and we do educational programs and we do work in social justice. Um, and our work in um, social justice is focused around education. And so, like I said, right now we uh, are running a healthcare provider study. Um, we just wrapped up two other research studies um, earlier this year, uh, COVID-19 and environmental uh, sustainability and social justice study. Um, and then we, um, on the education side, we uh, conduct community education events with partners um, and um, I have several different academic colleagues and partnerships that we work with. So Boston University is one of them. Um, also Excelsior College, I sit on their advisory board for their curriculum development. Um, so from the education side, we work with academic partners to help them uh, you know, conduct high quality cannabis education, both at undergraduate master's level. Um, I've also partnered with the community colleges and helped cannabis education centers be established at um, Holyoke Community College. So they run workforce training programs and I'm a part of that as well. Um, but then we run uh, general community education events. So if a partner is interested in, um, you know, getting the word out about cannabis and either destigmatize or in whatever way they want, uh, we work with groups like that. So right now having a, there's a Canna Curious um, event series that we have. Um, the third one will be in December. Um, those are those, uh, the first two events education wise were really about, you know, really trying to break it down for general consumers. What's the history of the industry or what's the state of the, uh, the research around just for consumers and patients. Um, but like I said, you know, we <clears throat> do education programs that are, you know, geared towards workforce training for the cannabis industry, for example. Um, the exciting social justice program that um, we launched this month um, this past month, since now December, um, is together with Minorities for Medical Marijuana and Massachusetts chapter, 
and it's an apprenticeship program where um, we are working to provide train uh, paid um, and mentored learning opportunities at uh, regulated licensed operators in Massachusetts for people negatively impacted by the war on drugs or who live in the 29 cities in Massachusetts that have been identified or are part of the state's equity program. So um, our first uh, uh, apprentice is on board in um, our first partner, DDM. Uh, right after this, I'm gonna get her in our learning management system and her focus, she's a nurse and our first apprentice is a nurse and her um, apprenticeship appointment is at a retail dispensary in mass and she'll be working on a project that will be working to enhance their um, cannabis consumer education materials. So we'll pro providing, you know, a lot of the data and resources and uh, from our end, Minorities for Medical Marijuana is giving them membership um, and other benefits uh, for participating in the program. And we're excited to kind of grow this program next year. Awesome. Um, so, so yeah, and, you know, other ways that we work with companies are now, um, we've been doing these sort of uh, research studies that have been working to engage the industry at large. So um, those studies I spoke about before, we did a lot of fundraising and partnership with, um, you know, recruiting companies to join our study, so to speak. Um, but we're now excited to expand our offerings and services. So if companies are interested in conducting custom studies, research studies, um, you know, maybe one group is interested in looking at cannabis and cancer, um, you know, other things. And, and I mean this here locally in Massachusetts. Um, we're really excited to start to be able to move into that area and, um, and, and some exciting discussions with a few uh, large operators right now about moving forward um, with some of their research plans. So we'll be continuing our um, ongoing you know, work at the healthcare provider study lasts until August of 2022. And um, yeah, we're hopeful to announce hopefully early next year some new, new exciting uh, research program areas, partners. That's great. Well, thank you guys for the incredible work that you're doing. Um, I know you also recently started um, a business, 510 Innovations. I'd love to hear a little about that. Yeah. Um, and thanks for the help and advice about it. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so 510 Innovations just launched this company. It's uh, uh, last month. It's an LLC. And um, this company is actually intending to provide uh, high-level uh, data analytic and uh, visualization services for the cannabis, entheogenic, and uh, psychedelic industries and healthcare innovation um, at large. So back to what we were talking about earlier, um, lots of groups and lots of people have lots of data and there's all this data, but um, data is only so valuable if you're using it. And um, what I realizes that uh, there's probably potential room and opportunity to take and triangulate data sources. Um, you know, either one company has some information that they would like to, you know, really understand how that would improve their bottom line or improve their outcomes. Um, and then <clears throat> we have a, a couple of partnerships in the 510 Innovations with other data sets that can be triangulated to, to help make meaning um, of data. Uh, and visualize that. So um, it's, a, it's an exciting new uh, company just getting off the ground. We'll be really, really launching in, in 2023, um, you know, early, or, yeah, 
2022, excuse me, again, back to that time thing, what year are we, um, in January, um, but it's uh, essentially providing data and analytic services. That's great and exciting and like, looking forward to seeing how that evolves and to hopefully helping you out with that along the way. Um, you briefly mentioned some of your art and uh, you, you mentioned to me that, you know, most people might not know that you're an artist. Um, would love to hear a little more about that and specifically about the uh, awareness project you mentioned. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, I um, am a long-standing long artist. I've been making jewelry. Um, I started off in jewelry and I've been making jewelry since I was I would say since I was in high school. Um, and when I lived in uh, Africa, when I lived in Ethiopia, I had a, a really strong jewelry business. Um, I, you know, when I traveled, also when I uh, traveled around all those different countries, one of the things that I, I did in that time was um, collect beads and, and really work on um, making and selling jewelry. But um, so I... I haven't really done a lot of art in the last couple of years because I've been so focused on the science side and and I put my jewelry to the wayside and I've just been, you know, thinking about science and in the last six months or so I've really tried to explore, you know, spending more time on my art and um, really kind of uh, practicing that um, in addition to my science. So um, I fell into a couple of different art areas. I was uh, started by dabbling in stained glass. So a couple months ago, you know, I'm learning how to do stained glass. This is my workshop. You can see this is my art station right here. So I'm sitting here stained glass and whatever. Um, and then I fell into leather working and I was like, okay, and I'm trying to just test these things out to see what I can do and what I, what do I like and to kind of take on in the future. So I started leather working a little bit and then somehow I fell into resin, resin art. Um, and um, so I also, so I, you know, thinking about how do you put things in resin? Um, I was also very touched by um, when I worked in HIV, um, the AIDS quilt. Do you know about the AIDS quilt? Uh, not much, would love to, to hear about it. Okay, so um, the AIDS quilt was a way it was a, um, a quilt where people came and they uh, made pieces in honor of uh, losing somebody to HIV. And this uh, quilt became like a really big icon in terms of public awareness around HIV and advocacy. And it was very powerful in my work. And it was an awareness project. And so I took that concept and as we've been talking, you know, uh, the last couple of months I've been presenting all of this data about why people are consuming and we're dealing with these really horrible health emergencies right now with COVID and the opioid epidemic and here I am doing art. And, um, and so I thought, hmm, well, maybe we could work on a way that as I'm presenting all this data, is there a way that I can incorporate my art into this as well? So I um, decided to start what's called the Phoenix Art Project. And over the last couple of months, I actually, I'll pull it out. Um, I went to several different cannabis cops and expos um, in the last couple of months and had uh, pieces, uh, I like, uh, basically asked people if they wanted to come make a piece of resin art with me in honor of somebody that they've lost due to addiction and the opioid epidemic. And then I would take that art with me when I gave my data talks. 
um, you know, to show that these are lives and people, not just numbers on a screen. And so for three different times, I, um, you know, hosted in the last couple of months at, you know, people coming to do the art. And this is what has been created. Wow. Um, you can really see it. I've fused it all Very into one. Cool. But um, what I did was have um, pieces of cannabis and also just different pieces of uh, natural things, uh, plants, crystals, keys, um, people could use to kind of put together. And then they use this two part. Uh, I'm now using Ecopoxy, which is not plastic, um, but they use that to kind of memorialize it in a time capsule. And so I've now few, these are all individual pieces and now I've put them all together so that I can carry it with me easier. Um, but as a result, I um, started uh, really getting much more into it. And all of my pieces of art really now try to involve cannabis leaves. That's beautiful. And for those that are that are just listening, is there anywhere they can go later to see any of this? Do you post it anywhere? Yeah, um, I'm really excited because I launched an Etsy page. And awesome. um, so they can go to the Phoenix Art Project on Etsy. That's where I have all the art there. I'm not selling the art that I am working on with people. This is, that's a little different project. Um, but whatever art I sell through this goes to fund that. I'm trying to use it as a way to then host another event. And so I can get some funding to get more people to come and, and do the art together. Um, but excitingly today, um, the Northeast, do you know the Leaf magazines, Northeast Leaf? And yeah, so I got, um, I met them when I started the Phoenix Art Project a couple months ago. They came over and they were like, whoa, your art's really cool. And today it got launched the Leaf Gift Guide for the oh, holiday. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thanks. I'm excited that it's going to get out there and uh, it is beautiful work. I'm excited to take a look at the Etsy page later. Yeah, thanks. And I've got a, um, got an Instagram page and a Facebook page going and uh, I'll make sure to link it all in the show notes cool thank you um yeah it's really fun so like next week I'm going to three events so I'll be there with pop-up art with talk about data um and raising awareness all at the same time so it's a really it's a great way for me to combine the love of you know creativity and with what I do now so yeah, I, I think that's a great way to to work in some of your other passions. Um, I think we both share that, you know, we have a variety of passions and um, it's always good to find ways to integrate them and uh, integrate various levels of creativity. You know, you can be a, a data scientist and also love art. Totally. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, you mentioned earlier about a teacher that came up to you and, you know, told you about how your work had affected her. Are there any other stories that stick out, um, in terms of when you really saw how your work could affect change? Yeah. Um, well, even, you know, that, that woman was, you know, pretty powerful from uh, just an individual perspective. Um, you know, the, the work that we did with the veterans uh, research study has has really, I think, um, hopefully made some kind of dent in advocacy around that. You know, the data has been used. It's in two bills in the state house right now, so it's being used to put into policy practice. Um, that study helped launch Cannabis Patient Care magazine, um, which is a uh, publication under Cannabis Science and Technology. So um, the results of the veteran study was part of the first seminal issue of that. Um, 
honestly, I really think that the data and the work that I've done has helped a number of, um, uh, helped tremendously, at least when I was, uh, you know, for many companies, uh, the events that we ran, I think we helped form a number of partnerships, you know, provided opportunities where companies could meet and partner. Um, you know, we now see a cannabis research license category here. I could see a, a lot of benefits from, um, you know, the work that, that we've done, and I hope to continue to see a lot more um, and, and having positive impacts on the industry. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I can only, I can only see that continuing for you and, and your team. Um, it's clear the impact that you guys have already had and seeing the research that you've brought to the space and just the doors that you've opened for people and the connections that you've made, you know, whether that's via your events or otherwise, um, I've seen firsthand a lot of the impact and even just going to these uh, BU competitions each year, um, every year I meet people that you've impacted. So, um, you know, honored to work with you. Oh, honored to work with you too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's real room to continue to think about the medical side. And I'm, I'm grateful that you also continue to work on advancing medical. I think what's, it could be uh, so easy to get lost in. Sure, adult use and personal use, but we can't leave our patients behind because, you know, there really is a lot of medicinal value to um, cannabis. So um, oh, yeah. we're keeping, I'm just gonna keep going on that side too. I, I also agree with personal use or recreational use. Um, yeah. Um, of course, but likewise. And for me, it's, I think everyone should have access to the plan if they wanted. And, uh, but medical patients that are currently suffering are, are certainly the most important. Um, and, you know, in somewhere like South Carolina, where I've been doing a lot of work, um, that is an easier sell in general to someone that is incredibly old school or conservative that, Hey, don't you want to make, don't you want to have compassion for people? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. One question that I always find interesting um, with my guests is, uh, is there an experience from your childhood that you recall that showed you the importance of giving back, you know, regardless of which side of that giving you were on? I guess I was exposed to uh, my parents uh, are very, um, very giving people and very caring people. Um, and so I was exposed to that very early on to really want to care about changing things in a positive way and want to volunteer and want to help. Um, and I started, you know, when I was very young, trying to just always like help fix and do. Um, so I think, you know, just being raised by um, very thoughtful people um, around wanting to be, um, you know, um, give back, uh, I yeah. think would probably be the most, most quintessential part of my childhood. Um, but when I was in Zimbabwe and that story was really just so eye-opening for me because I had come, you know, coming from America, you have every, you know, we have so much, you go into a, a grocery store and you can pick out, you know, a hundred different kinds of breakfast cereal, but knowing what it's like in very impoverished situations, which is nothing at all like that, um, is a, it's an important thing to, it has been a, a, a really impactful thing in my life. Um, 
I now can't take what I have for granted. I know what it, I know how people live in poverty and I've seen them die in poverty and I've tried to help them not die. So it'll be hard to take uh, compassion out of my heart. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I guess being exposed at such an early age to that yeah. high level of poverty. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine how impactful that would be. And maybe I didn't ask enough earlier when we were talking about Africa, what, what was it like to be there and live there as a part of your everyday life? You know, I certainly met plenty of Americans that have gone and visited and, you know, done mission trips and things like that. But what was it like to live there every day? Yeah, I mean, to be quite frank, I was privileged, you know, to live there. Like it was um, because I had a job, you know, and so I have to recognize also that that I I lived in very good uh, housing conditions. And um, but it was and you were, and just to remind us, you were mostly living in Ethiopia. Yes. In your time there. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I lived mainly in Ethiopia, and the other times I would just travel in and out of um, countries uh, for short-term TA. So in Ethiopia, you know, it was, oh, wow. It's like one of my favorite countries in the world. If that makes sense. The, the people watching a culture and just, I, I learned the language. I just really tried to understand such a historical country, but one of the poorest. And, you know, um, just the way that the, the culture is, the way that the language is, is very um, different and respectful. And like, there's a, there's a whole tense for how you talk to people with respect, uh, like a tone. So like she, he, but respect tone. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, yeah, you know, it was, it, uh, yeah, it feels like a whole other life. It was a whole other yeah. life ago. Um, yeah, but it was fascinating, I mean, it was difficult, um, but, you know, I, I did always uh, feel like I, you know, I, I learned the language and I um, really tried my best to do a really good job. And, but I also learned that I'm, I'm never, you know, I, I am an American, I'm a white woman, that's what I am and um, can't change that. But it doesn't mean that I don't have, um, you know, core values of social justice and change because of, my skin color, but I was very aware of my um, skin color. And obviously when you're one of two people that are white in an office of 175. Um, and, you know, so that was really, you know, I was also at the time married to an Ethiopian. And so having an interracial relationship and having and watching that and how people treated and all sorts, you know, it's very, very fascinating stuff. Um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was, um, like I said, you know, it was, uh, from a, from a work perspective, I'm, I'm, you know, proud of the work that we did and, um, you know, um, yeah, very different life. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So you talked about your parents and how impactful they were, you know, is there anyone that you've considered a mentor, uh, over your career? Yeah. Um, several people, uh, have been, um, very influential youth have been a very influential mentor um and currently um yeah one of the uh people that i i uh, met early on in ethiopia he, he's now the head of the world health organization dr uh, todros um Adhanom. and you know he was at the time when i met him he was a mayor 
and he then grew to, you know, now be the head of the World Health Organization. And a lot of the ways that he had approached um, health, I, I really admired in Ethiopia and the way that he implemented some of these programs. Um, my father has been a mentor. Um, you know, I, uh, BU's been a mentor. Um, in the cannabis industry, um, one of the biggest research mentors of mine is Dr. Stacy Gruber and Dr. Peter Grunspoon. And they um, sit on the advisory board for the nonprofit and have, um, Dr. Gruber I've worked with for four years now. And is a, so I, I really admire her and we still uh, work together and I'm excited about future work that we've got going on um, and, and in the works and planning. Um, and Dr. Peter Grinspoon is an amazing um, clinician if nobody knows who he is, but his father was Dr. Lester Grinspoon, who was um, you know, not given professorship at Harvard because of his work in uh, cannabis and reform <laughs> in the academic sector. Um, so uh, Peter, his son um, works at Mass General and he's a clinician and a colleague of mine and uh, works on the cannabis side too. So I, I, I look to him, I, I call him often. I'm excited. He's actually, we're running a cannabis science fair at the Build Lab next week. And, um, and uh, Dr. Grinspoon will be giving a, a keynote talk um, and talking about his role and his work. So if folks, uh, we won't have that, that event live streamed, but if folks around the Boston area, pop by and hear us. Well, this, this may end up getting published after your event. So uh, if that's the case, hopefully it will have gone very well and people will be able to attend future events. Awesome. Yeah, we're hoping it for it to be a, an annual event. So. so we've talked a lot about your work thus far and what you've been up to in the Massachusetts community and um, how you've been expanding cannabis research. Is there anywhere that you sort of see yourself going or, or where you hope all of this is going to lead down the road? Yeah, I, um, well, I'm excited. Um, yesterday, I uh, announced that I've been <clears throat> invited to be a, an advisory board member of Cannabis BPO. They're a um, contact uh, call center and other solution provider for the cannabis industry. Um, I'm excited to, uh, you know, be on their board and start to uh, work with them in different capacities as well. Where, where I see myself is I'd like to continue to conduct really high quality cannabis research studies together with partners and um, really continue to, to bridge this gap between um, the industry and where our healthcare uh, industry is right now. I think that's a new focus. I mean, right now I'm running a healthcare provider study of extensive work in developing, continuing medical education programs and training programs in HIV, et cetera. So, um, and I've been working on um, educational programs. So looking more towards the healthcare side, um, I'm interested in and, um, you know, conduct, conduct, conducting uh, rigorous trials. Um, really hopeful to uh, get a research license and, and be able to operate um, with companies doing clinical trials and human populations and everything that I've been hoping that the state would be able to, <laughs> you know, that they've taken and listened. So um, yeah, I see myself in the next five years, um, you know, trying to continue to collaborate with some of the leading researchers in, in the field here and with the industry and continue to make a difference. Um, conducting all sorts of different types of research studies. 
And then um, through 510 Innovations, really excited to see where the intersection between cannabis and entheogenic medicine and our current healthcare system, you know, how, how, how that interacts and how that intersects and how we can come up with transformative um, new treatment paradigms and ways that we can address some of the main health issues that we face and COVID, anxiety and PTSD and um, with the opioid crisis. So yeah, I'm hopeful that, you know, some of the work in the next five years can really make a, a positive impact on people not dying as much as they are and how can we find different lethal, non-lethal alternatives to introduce and how do we do that safely, effectively, and responsibly, so. Well, I look forward to uh, witnessing the progress as uh, you continue. And, you know, one thing, we, we talked a little bit about it um, directly before the recording, but uh, people have liked the idea of my guests asking me a question. And uh, so you, you feel free. Yeah, good. I have so many questions for you, but my first <laughs> one is, well, what drew you to cannabis and what was the real inspiration behind creating the BU competition that uh, we ended up winning first year? Yeah, I'll, I'll go into the first part briefly in terms of what drew me to cannabis. Um, you know, growing up in South Carolina, cannabis and most substances were demonized. And, um, you know, I was grown up, growing up, I was told that it was just something that you weren't supposed to do. It was bad. And so, you know, I didn't try it for a long time. I didn't try it until my early 20s. And um, when I did, I was like, hmm, why has everyone been saying that this is so awful for so long? Like, it doesn't seem that way. And that drove me to do a lot of research into it and just started to dug in. I wanted to learn. I wanted to get an understanding of the history of the plants and how it became demonized and um, you know, I quickly learned about all of the use cases it's had over thousands of years. And um, at the same time, I was seeing Colorado start to legalize and in, in other places as well. And um, as a business person, I saw an opportunity, like here's a product that I was beginning to not only enjoy, but it was adding value to my life in terms of helping with things like anxiety. And I thought, well, how many times in my life am I going to get an opportunity to get involved in an industry that already has buyers all over the world? So, you know, this financial interest kind of drew me in. But then when I, from there, I started to meet as many people as I could in the space, attend as many events as I could. And I quickly learned about the incredible atrocities of the war on drugs and uh, the inequality in terms of enforcement. And, you know, I was at outraged by it. I was disgusted by the fact that there's people that need cannabis medicine that can't get it and are, are given horrible alternate alternatives with lots of side effects. And so really it, it started off my, my business sense drew me to the space, but um, my compassion is what's really driven me and driven my passion for it. Um, and for some of the work that I do. And when it comes to BU uh, and the competition, um, after college, within a couple of years, I had started working with the startup accelerator at BU, now known as the Build Lab. And I saw this as an opportunity to get BU involved in this space and show that cannabis truly is a career opportunity for its students. And 
Um, so when cannabis was legalized, the vote went through in Massachusetts. That's really when I started the conversation. I'd kind of been uh, having the conversation lightly with uh, my buddy Dave Fru and the alumni uh, with the Questrom alumni office at BU. And um, he and I had lunch one day with Ian Mashter, you know, and um, I kind of posed this concept of a startup competition uh, as a way to make BU a leader in cannabis to show other schools that, hey, this is a real thing. This is something we should not only acknowledge, but support. And I really, really appreciate their willingness and openness to supporting that concept. You know, they, we, they had to take that all the way up the flagpole at BU. And uh, we were really fortunate that everyone along the way kind of got where we were coming from and could see that this was something that was important. And uh, to have done five years of our competition um, has been, you know, a dream come true. And when Mike and I first started this, um, we were hopeful that it would become something annual. And after year one, you know, we we're like, wow, that was amazing. We could, you were there, you know, we could feel the energy in the air. This was starting conversations within the academic community, within BU. And people were just excited to see a sign up at campus that like, what, there's a cannabis event on campus? And, you know, we weren't saying, hey, go smoke up in your dorm room because which BU doesn't allow, you know, we're saying, hey, this is a real career opportunity and there, there's a lot of research to be done. There's a lot of people that can be helped. So it was just something that came together out of our passions in a way that we felt we could showcase what cannabis is and what it offers. And um, also something we could bring back to BU for, you know, the great experiences that we had there. And um, it honestly is one of the most fun things we work on every year. And um, seeing the excitement and the innovation that comes from startups in the space, um, especially from uh, often from students and alumni, uh, it's been really incredible. And um, we've seen other colleges come on board. Some of them have actually talked to us to try to get some advice on it. And oh, really? that's been tremendous. Uh, yeah, we worked with Ohio State a little bit on a, a, a cannabis sprint that they did. And uh, I think if Mike and I had the time, we would love to do this at a bunch of schools and turn it into some kind of tournament or something. But unfortunately, uh, we have too much time on the things that pay the bills. So, yeah, <laughs> well, it's made a tremendous impact here. And, you know, kudos to y'all for doing it, because I would be here for without that competition. You know, that was a crucial part of my my journey. So kudos to y'all. And, and you definitely have been. I, I'm excited. You were the first. Um, so it's exciting to hear that other colleges are, are coming on now, too. Yeah, like, yeah, it's been awesome. And uh, like I said, we'd love to be running them at a bunch of places. But even if, if anyone listening is involved in uh, colleges and startups there and um, anything of that nature, we're always happy to help share templates, things like that, because we just want this to happen. Um, we want to keep this going and to also show, you know, the colleges and the students what they can do in cannabis. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. We support. Of course. It. Yeah. Thank you for, for the question. So I get the glow about the competition that we love doing and, um, you know, next up on my list, I was going to ask you this, this question I've been asking all my guests, um, I've gotten some really interesting answers. Um, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be and how do you think that change would reverberate? 
Um, if I could snap my fingers and change, fix one thing in the world, it would be, um, it would be the opiate crisis right now in the United States, honestly. Um, and it's, it's really, really out of control here. And I've been hearing, um, you know, more and more as of late COVID and all of these restrictions are making our, our epidemic so much worse here. Um, so <clears throat> when I've been going around, I'm, 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 when you talk to younger people, people that are in their 20s and people that are, you know, in their teens, they face some really serious, um, you know, issues right now with, this, with the opioid epidemic and crime and just much different than when I was in my 20s. Um, and so I just feel sad that young people, um, you know, are faced with, with really this challenge right now. Um, you know, if I could, if I could snap my fingers and fix it, I think the world, you know, how would that reverberate? I think a lot of people would be really happy to not see their moms, sisters, brothers, sons, daughters die from needlessly. Yeah. And, from, um, you know, things that are happening now with fentanyl and, and stuff like this. So I understand that, you know, there's, um, I just, this is why I think it's so important that medical cannabis has a non-lethal alternative because, you know, we need other options out there right now. And, and there are treatment, you know, methadone and, and all these other treatment uh, patterns, but I wish our young people didn't have to suffer and die from, from something yeah. that, you know, has um, been created in the last couple of decades. And, um, you know, so yeah. hopefully, uh, you know, we could hopefully uh, the, the, the word around cannabis and its role as a non-lethal alternative can have some kind of impact there. Yeah. Solving, that crisis would save so many lives. And like you said, the dent that cannabis can make in it is worth fighting for and um, appreciate that you've been doing that. And um, I'm sure that a lot of listeners are interested in supporting your work. What's the best way that they can do that? Thanks, yeah. Um, so uh, we um, always love any kind of donation or support or financial to support uh, to keep going. We are a tax deductible organization if that qualifies for the group. So you can go to our website at cannabiscenterofexcellence.org. And we have a number of ways either, um, you know, groups can support our work uh, financially through a donation, like I said, or we can partner on different research studies um, or design custom educational programs together. Um, so go to our website, it's just been updated. And uh, there's a couple of ways that groups can get involved. Um, and we've got some exciting uh, campaigns launching, um, like I said, with full force in, in early next year. Um, so different educational campaigns around stuff that we've been talking about, medical cannabis and medication alternatives. Um, so people can, uh, companies, individuals, anybody can sign up and support there. Um, we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So you can, um, you know, follow our postings and uh, see new up and coming, emerging, exciting opportunities as they come along. Awesome. Well, um, hopefully you continue to inspire people the way that you have been over these many years and I'm excited to keep our conversation going. Uh, and thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's always a pleasure to talk and connect. Um, you're a great mentor of mine. So thank you. Thank you, Mary. And I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com. Peoplearetheanswer.com